Clinker Factor, the Cement Industry Podcast. Welcome to the Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA, which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world. I'm Ian Riley, CEO of WCA, and your host on the Clinker Factor. And today I'm talking to Robert Niven, the CEO and founder of Carbon Cure Technologies, which is a Canadian carbon removal technology company. So we're going to move downstream slightly from cement and look at innovation in the concrete industry. But more surprisingly, uh, Rob is going to explain how Carbon Cure have been strikingly successful in scaling up by learning from successful tech companies. So in less than five years, Carbon Cure have deployed across 300 concrete plants in three continents. So let's talk more about that in a moment. But first, Rob, can I ask you to give a short introduction to your background and how you wound up in the cement and concrete industry? Uh, thank you very much, Ian. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I love the podcast. Uh, I, I, like you said, uh, I'm, I'm also a Canadian. This is a Canadian company based in Halifax. I, I, I did a chemistry degree as an undergrad and was really introduced to concrete in my engineering grad studies at McGill University. And at that time, I was immersed in concrete, um, got to learn a lot about the industry, at least from a materials perspective. And that's also where this technology was born. This was part of my thesis about the beneficial use of carbon dioxide in making concrete. And since then, it sort of led to a very fulfilling journey of working with concrete producers in different countries and helping them become more competitive and sustainable at the same time and continuing to learn something uh, new every day. It's uh, been a really great industry to work in. Okay. So Carbon Cure has uh, recently been in the news attracting investment from major tech giants. I believe Amazon, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Microsoft are amongst your investors. So why are the tech industry so interested in you? And um, what, what impact are they having on your business? There's actually so many different reasons on why there's a strategic fit. And uh, I think that this, was, this became very clear for our new investors and, and certainly for ourselves. It's interesting, I wouldn't have thought there would have been a connection between tech and, and concrete, let alone carbon cure, even three years ago. But as this space of decarbonizing the industry has evolved, it's really shown that tech is actually a very natural partner. Tech's probably the most important group of stakeholders to, to carbon cure after our customers. And you know, the obvious reason is that when you look at the new economy, it's, it's going online. That means a lot of fulfillment centers, a lot of data centers, even a few offices. And all of this construction is occurring right now around the world. And these tech companies are very innovative and they're also very mission aligned with Carbon Cure on decarbonization. So they're choosing the best in class, low carbon products uh, to be able to build their, their facilities. So that's the obvious point. Um, some of the other things that we're doing around carbon removal offsets is an area that is a particular interest to the tech industry, which are leading this change in climate. What I mean by that is they're purchasing offsets to meet their corporate climate goals, just as the cement companies have made very similar goals. They're actually looking to concrete to be able to help them with the net part of net zero by 2050. And the highest quality of offset is one called carbon removal, which I'm happy to talk about later if you like. So we have offsets, we have construction, and then we have data. And it turns out that um, these, these companies are really focused on industrial, digital, 
uh, uh, products to be able to help companies meet uh, competitive issues. And certainly decarbonization is one of the biggest opportunities facing this industry today. And they would like to be able to bring these solutions of big data um, by working with partners such as Carbon Cure to the industry to be able to help them transition. There's a, there's a number of, of reasons on why this has been such a great fit. And at the end of the day, I love working with partners that are mission aligned on climate. So it becomes really fun. Uh, these become very productive and fast moving, uh, interesting, stimulating um, partnerships that are allowing us to really meet all our goals. So would you like to introduce your, your mission? You mentioned that in terms of mission alignment. I'd be happy to. And it's nice to have that clarity for, for Carbon Cure, our, our mission and everyone within Carbon Cure signs up for this is to reduce 500 million tons of CO2 annually by 2030 through the concrete industry. And we do that using carbon utilization, otherwise known as carbon removal technologies that provide concrete producers the ability to become more competitive through cost efficiencies and through decarbonization. For us to achieve that mission, it really means two pillars. The first pillar being global expansions. We talked a bit about the rapid deployment of, of these systems worldwide, but it also means innovation. So we're definitely not finished innovating and creating new carbon utilization technologies. We're continuing to bring new technologies to add to our portfolio including one that was just released last year for the Carbon X Prize that is already uh, in its first commercial deployment. And we expect that one to be complementing our portfolio. For the uh, guys who are coming from within the cement and concrete industry, can you explain how you are removing the CO2 from that concrete value chain? Sure, let's, um, let's provide a little more detail. Um, I, I should also say on the 500 megaton mission, we, we did publish our roadmap uh, it's on our website. Anyone's welcome to look at it. We can actually explain how we plan to meet that goal. So it doesn't feel that ambitious. Uh, well, it feels ambitious, but it doesn't feel out of, out of reach uh, once you have a plan. So please come and look at that. Um, while you're on your website, uh, we also have a virtual plant tour that explains how the technology works. But let me just for the purpose of the podcast today, uh, help, help um, paint a bit of a picture. Uh, so if you can picture any concrete plant, they're just about all the same. There's central mixers and, and dry batch mixers. Uh, we use CO2 uh, within the batching process, similar to using an admixture. The CO2 is provided by uh, third-party distributors of CO2 gas. Those are called industrial gas suppliers. These are some companies that you're probably familiar with. The large multinationals are uh, the Germans uh, Lindy and uh, French uh, Air Liquide and all of their subsidiaries. They capture CO2 from uh, final emitters, uh, post-industrial final emitters that are typically ethanol, ammonia, or refineries. And we believe there's also an opportunity for cement. So that CO2 is injected into the concrete as it's being batched. A chemical reaction occurs, which is similar to the reverse reaction of calcination, where that CO2 is re-precipitated -pre back in the concrete almost immediately as a nano-calcium carbonate mineral. That nanomaterial provides concrete seeding sites to be able to accelerate the hydration reaction and strength development of concrete. Once you have this earlier strength concrete, the concrete quality control team is then able to take advantage of this higher performance at both early and later stage by different means of optimization. So that's really up to the QC manager to understand what materials he or she has available to them. And that can be uh, using more SEMs. Uh, it can be adjusting the cement. 
And then of course, maintaining volume with, um, with fine aggregates. So that's a bit about how the technology works, both from a chemical and mechanical point of view. But there's also more to Carbon Cure in that we provide ongoing technical support. We, we help the concrete producers maximize that performance benefit. But we also, I think what really sets us apart is how we really get interactive with and stand with them in the marketplace. So once they've gained this um, CO2 advantage, they have to be able to wield that in the marketplace to be able to get more business. And especially if they're able to provide this product at the same price because the technology is paid for by the cement savings, is then they have a price parity greener product. So we work closely with training them on how to be able to gain market um, through green, but also we work directly with specifiers, whether public or private, to be able to gain specifications or procurement policy advantages. So is this a little bit like um, an Intel inside kind of uh, a branding? It's exactly that. It, yeah, that's a perfect way to explain it. And, and that many of the producers, well, all of the producers actually keep the Carbon Cure name because it helps them differentiate and gain a competitive sales advantage. We're so active in the marketplace. It just makes sense to do that. And we always prefer to develop the market with our producer partners so that we can be much more effective when working together. Coming back to the scaling, um, uh, you, you mentioned to me on, on a call we had a while ago that, that you felt that the, the way that you'd scaled the business, you'd learned a lot from how the tech companies had done it. Can you explain that? Because on the face of it, uh, concrete and software seem very different. Yeah, but they really aren't. It's a, well, in some ways they are, of course. But um, so a lot of the technology was based on looking at the admixture industry. Um, so we, we, we picked the things we liked and we got rid of the things that we didn't. Um, and then we were left with something that we thought was really scalable. And everything we do is with a mind towards scaling because our mission is to reduce 500 megatons by 2030. It doesn't matter if we're successful technology-wise is we have to do it within that time frame, And that requires the scaling mentality. So we knew that the business model also had to be scalable. So we looked towards industries that were and have been historically fantastically scalable. These are the, this is of course the software industry, uh, the, the, the digital economy. And they use something called a SaaS model. So this is where you offer technology that sometimes includes hardware and digital software, and you provide that with no cost. If you give the technology away, you create value for the customer with this technology that then pays for the reoccurring licensing fee. So the customer would sign up for a period of time. We would provide them all the equipment and services for them to be successful in the marketplace. We pack that full of, of, of digital, uh, including telemetry and powerful tools that they can use for market development and, and, and on the tech optimization side. And then, and then that allows them to be able to gain much more value. And then part of that is shared with Carbon Cure. So it's really a win-win opportunity and recognizes that this industry doesn't have a lot of capital to be able to deploy to new technologies. And also it just slows down the process if you have to go through that capital approval process. And this is something that's very affordable and they can be up and running and gaining a cost and market advantage literally overnight. So they, for the concrete companies, other than their own you know, internal costs of their employees working on the project, they, they don't have any additional upfront costs. Is that right? That's exactly right. And we've also then continue to look at how this model can evolve. 
And one of the things that we've just over the last few months have, have found is that um, concrete can actually be a enormous opportunity to create high premium carbon offsets. And these are called carbon removal offsets. So this is another way that we can bolster the business model is that we're able to use the digital architecture that we have at each plant to be able to create a very efficient transaction of carbon offsets that are created from the use of our technology. Because that's such a premium type of offset in that it's a permanent solution that meets the definitions of carbon removal. So we can take CO2 out of the air and then put that away permanently as a mineral and concrete. Then what that means is that that's gonna command a much higher price. So then we, we were able to sell that on the marketplace very efficiently and then take the proceeds or part of the proceeds of those carbon removal offsets and then invest those back into the concrete producer. So they are able to gain another revenue um, stream. So then it's a again, more of a win-win opportunity. And we're never gonna stop looking for these business model innovations that allow us to be able to make the process of decarbonizing more and more profitable at no cost. And, and is this working in the voluntary markets or? or? Exactly. Yeah, this is a, a pure voluntary play. I would point people towards, you know, some, some well-known buyers in this space, uh, Microsoft, Shopify, Stripe. These are all companies that have uh, publicly available material and have made uh, public announcements around their purchasing of carbon removal offsets. It's really the direction of the voluntary offset market. If we see the uh, voluntary offset um, market task force uh, headed up by Mark Carney, it's, it's really pointing towards the markets going to carbon removal. And what I've actually seen is that many corporates who have taken early action to buy offsets are finding that those are no longer eligible because they were lower quality. They may have come from um, uh, natural systems and they're having to go out and buy again. And I think this is really important and we'll probably get to this on this podcast is that our industry is making all these net zero by 2050 pronouncements. The net means offsets. And we have to make sure that those are high quality, but the really fortuitous thing is that the concrete or the cement and concrete industry can create their own uh, within the concrete industry that are um, gold standard and that will stand up to the test of time and they can be used on, within their own organization. Um, so that I think is something I think is often overlooked because when I look and you sort of read the fine uh, details on these net, net carbon products that we're seeing right now is they're using forestry offsets. We should be doing that ourselves, right? <laughs> but we're, we're kind of going into a, another area of discussion but if, and happy to go further if you'd like. But um, so th that just gives you an example of, of how we're developing uh, different business models from the tech industry and, and learning from the admixture model on, on designing the equipment. So um, I think the comparison with forestry is interesting because, uh, you, you know, if we think about storing CO2, I mean, one way is you store it as a mineral. Um, so as in, as in concrete, then another way you store it in, in trees. And obviously you have the question then of, uh, are, are you going to be more vulnerable to wildfires and all the rest of it in the, in the future? Uh, so I think on, on that side, we can easily understand why storing it in rock is higher quality than storing it in, in, in trees. But um, you mentioned another aspect, which was the carbon removal side of things. And um, 
So a lot of the CO2 re reduction comes from using less cement. So how does that qualify as carbon removal? What, what's the criteria there? That the carbon removal component occurs by the mineralization of CO2 in concrete. So whether it's our, our concrete um, carbonation technology or if it's the wash water technology or even working on aggregate technologies, all of these have increasing portions of direct mineralization. And, and that would be the, uh, the carbon removal uh, impact. And carbon removal is both capture and utilization. The preference would be using biogenic or direct air mechanical direct air capture uh, methods to source the CO2. Uh, but today that's not really available. So we use the next best thing, which is post-industrial CO2 captured from large emitters. That could be cement plants uh, in the future, but today that's ethanol, ammonia and refineries. Um, so would you, uh, is there any other advice that you'd like to give to uh, startup companies in, in the sort of space of helping cement and concrete to decarbonize? You know, how, how, how can they learn from your experience in terms of scale? Yeah, I, I think, again, learn tanking a lot from the most successful industry to innovate, which is tech. And you know, one of the, you know, one of the slogans at Facebook, for instance, is move fast and break things. Um, that's not normally something that or a way that we think about in the cement and concrete industry, but it's very important to iterate. And you also don't want to iterate too long in your lab is you have to be able to get a modular system into a real life setting, because we all know that what works in a lab is often far different than what works in the field. And you can learn so much in those occasions. So you need to be able to find the right, uh, the right commercial partner. And there's a book that I, it stands the test of time. It's um, Crossing the Chasm and all tech entrepreneurs should really read this book. It talks about how there are different types of psychologies of partners and you wanna work with the right partner at the right time. And typically the, um, in my experience is the larger the organization the harder it is to be able to, to work with uh, on, on actual innovation work. So you have to be able to find that, that what I find to be the best, the local partner that is really looking to create and be entrepreneurial with you, make some mistakes, have that right culture of, of uh, failing and uh, iterate. And then you can get a really robust product that can then be scaled and always looking beyond just technology, but also the model. So when, when you're looking for uh, potential partners to deploy your technology, is there, some, is there something in particular that you're looking for? If we, if we have uh, concrete companies that are listening to this who think they might be suitable, what, what are you looking for in a partner there? Yeah, so of course, you know, we have proven technology now, so our needs are a bit different and we've crossed the chasm as the book would have it. And, and today we can work with, with all concrete producers, uh, both multinationals and and. Um, large regionals and, and smaller independents. Uh, we have worked, as you mentioned earlier, with around 300 plants now, and there's a nice mix. We are very focused on international expansion right now and are open to speaking to new producers, even if they're in new markets. Uh, we feel like it's our imperative, as I've heard you say many times, Ian, is most of the concrete today is being poured in emerging markets. Uh, we really need to be able to make sure this technology transfers very effectively in those markets as well. So we don't only wanna be working with producers in, in New York or London and these um, more developed 
markets is we have to go where the volume is because that's where the CO2 reductions are too. Um, perhaps we could just turn to uh, policy for a minute. Uh, so I think in order to accelerate climate change action in the cement industry and, and uh, concrete industry as well, uh, government has a, a role to play and regulations have a role to play. And I think there's probably a couple of ways that we've seen that regulations can have an impact. Uh, one of those is in putting a carbon price, you know, a, a price on emitting carbon or, or dumping carbon, as we might say. Uh, and then the other is uh, preferential procurement policies for municipal projects or you know, government projects, or, or perhaps also there are, there are ways of rating products in terms of their carbon footprint that, that can have a similar effect in, in general markets. I, I wonder if uh, you have a, a view on what we can expect to change, given that we're going to have a, a change of administrations in the US. Uh, what, what can we expect uh, in, in the US and Canada for the next few years? Well, we're, we're, we're very, very involved in, in, in the US. Um, most, most of our producers we work with, about 85% are, are in the US right now and uh, have a very active policy program as well, both um, in, in all markets that we serve. Uh, so Europe, Southeast Asia, North America. And, and in my view, carbon pricing can be very punitive to this industry. And it is sort of a heavy hammer way of being able to affect change. Um, I think that first, what needs to occur is create the conditions for innovation in decarbonization technologies. So, you know, before looking at any policies, we need to take care of standards. We need to move away from perform our prescriptive based standards and work towards a performance based standards to allow concrete producers to do what they do best um, and make good quality products and meet specifications uh, based upon performance standards. So that's job number one. It's not sexy, but that needs to happen before talking about any policies. Unfortunately, and in the US, there's a there's a trend of that happening and that's the future, but it's just not happening fast enough. Um, especially we need to be able to encourage DOTs to make that shift even faster and work within the understanding that climate change is an urgent challenge. That isn't, you know, many of these standards were set 50 years ago. Um, we don't, we can't wait another 50 years for this to occur. So once you have the right environment on the regulatory side, yes, price and carbon can be helpful. Uh, yes, it can be helpful to do things like subsidizing pilot projects, but we don't wanna just create what I call pilot theater uh, where you just have these sort of one-offs that are never really intended to be scalable. Um, and there's also things like 45Q in the U.S., which subsidize the sourcing of CO2. Having more CO2 supply is nice, but that's not the bottleneck. Um, I think where we really need to focus, and as one of your prior guests that was speaking about, uh, Thomas Schultz from uh, F.L. Schmidt, is we need to focus on procurement. Uh, with the end user. And government is the single largest buyer of concrete. So in the US, they have something called buy clean type legislation, which is using procurement. I feel like that can work on other products that are really homogeneous. On concrete, that doesn't work. And of course, no one buys cement except concrete companies. So it doesn't work just on cement. That can apply like a low, a low carbon fuel standard type of approach. But for concrete, you need a different mechanism with procurement because there are thousands of different types of concrete mixes. And you definitely can't expect a bureaucrat to be able to assign maximum carbon limits on those. That doesn't make sense. Also, concrete companies have regional availability of materials and technologies, and there's also limitations on size and scale. 
So we don't want to create an environment where only certain large uh, concrete producers can benefit and others can't. So where, where I, I think the way is going is, is there's a model that was created in Honolulu last year. Um, and it was adopted across 1400 cities in the US uh, through the US Conference of Mayors. And it was really refined. And I think as uh, a very scalable precedent set by New York State, it's called LECLA, the Low Embodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act. And this really lays out a competitive type framework where concrete producers can gain an advantage in the procurement scoring process by having a lower embodied carbon product. Um, and, it, and it really takes into consideration the local availability and size of the operation. And it doesn't necessarily cost more because the lowest bidder can also be the lowest carbon producer um, so that the budgets are protected. And it also gives an allowance on what a price premium they'd be willing to pay. And this is a model that is also evergreen and that you aren't requiring bureaucrats to come back and update it every, every one or two or three years. And it has a continuous incentive for concrete producers to be able to drive down the carbon footprint of concrete in a competitive environment. The other really important piece of this legislation is that not only does it drive carbonization, but it also drives innovation. And I think, Ian, if you were to read any of the industry's decarbonization roadmaps, usually it's around 50% of the solution is tied to carbon capture utilization storage. So we don't want to create a policy that just maximizes the same old thing, uh, which might be, you know, SEM, which is excellent, and, and substitution work and, and other mechanisms. We also have to have an eye towards what's going to be required, let alone critical in the next couple decades. So we need to be able to start scaling up CO2 capture uh, utilization storage technologies. And that's where this um, legislation also takes that step is they provide an extra incentive if you're going to take those essential critical technology deployment steps around CCUS. And if you do that, then you get another, another benefit. So I think that this was a really well thought out policy that I think is, you know, nothing's perfect. And we'll see how this thing uh, works and hopefully if it's adopted. And I'm sure that many other jurisdictions will be following that model. Uh, so you mentioned, Rob, that it's already been adopted in 1400 cities uh, across the US. Is that right? It's a model, a procurement model of, of concrete. It's a more simpler model um, that was developed in Hawaii. Um, and then the resolution was adopted uh, by the US Conference of Mayors, which represents 1400 cities. Um, so this is a uh, a very simple model where they they preferentially procure uh, concrete uh, made with uh, mineralized CO2 when it's available at the same cost and quality. Uh, so this provides safeguards for the um, public um, public safety, but it also encourages innovation and decarbonization. So that's a more simple model. There's two models, Rob. One's the Honolulu model and one's the New York City model. Is that right? Um, yeah, they are on a spectrum of the same model, I would say, um, but one is a little more refined than the other, and it's a, a state legislation, not city in New York. Um, but then in Hawaii, it was also state and, and city work, and the DOT was also involved in that as well. So I, I think there's some really great innovation happening on the policy side. Uh, we have a blog about this on our website, so uh, please feel free to uh, to to come and, and view that. I yes, that would be great, actually. I mean, I think this kind of innovation in, in policy is important because it, it it's an accelerator. You know, we, we, we need to find ways of, of uh, going faster 
and as you you mentioned, uh, a price on carbon uh, has has some drawbacks. Uh, I think a price on carbon probably is helpful, but um, uh, the the other alternative is you do something on the market side. So I think probably uh, that's something that we we should. Uh, uh, be keener on is to see something on the market side to uh, encourage uh, the right kind of products. And to clarify, I think government only needs to apply policy for their own projects. Um, and because they're such a large single buyer is once they are able then to drive change in, in technology and products is the concrete producer is not if it's a, a better way of doing things, they're not just going to ship that to public projects, they're they're going to you know, they're going to just mainstream that it's going to be provided to the private sector as well. But it's so much easier to pass policy if you're not having to affect private sector and you're showing leadership by going first. Uh, and then the private sector is just going to be brought these solutions that are going to be encouraged by public sector action. No, that makes uh, that makes good sense. And I think, as you say, there's a lot less uh, resistance to that kind of path than trying to make it uh, compulsory across the board. Yes, I, I think. There are, the only market that uh, I'm aware of where there's a substantial premium uh, for green products is Sweden. Um, but I think the, there's a, an interest in green products pretty much everywhere if the pricing is comparable. Yeah, I, I think it's on it's an onus on innovators like Carbon Cure and, and others is to be able to think about the technology and the model, like to find ways to bring that that technology or product to the market at the same price. It's not gonna be scalable if we're asking the market to pay very high premiums because like you're also talk a lot about is like that may work in places like Sweden, but that's not gonna work in places like Vietnam um, or, or China or Malaysia. And, and we have to be designing technologies that are scalable. So that means all of concrete, you know, not just precast or it's, it's ready mix, it's, it's all the products, it's all the markets. And, and that's really where we have to challenge ourselves. Okay, well, Rob, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd uh, like to leave us with before we, uh, before we close? Yeah, I suppose the last thing is, is like, I would just really encourage, um, you know, di uh, different listeners to be thinking about uh, concrete decarbonization as a competitive advantage. And, and uh, this shouldn't be looked at as a compliance type of uh, onerous process is those that are able to drive down decarbonization into the products themselves and, and, and be able to market those is they're going to be rewarded. There's an enormous, um, enormous opportunity right now worldwide for this. And, and we need many more solutions very urgently for us to be able to meet our, as the industry is setting these net zero targets is, you know, that's going to require a lot of different solutions within the portfolio. No, I think that's a, a great message to end on because uh, in most of the world, there, there isn't a government uh, requirement or mandate uh, to uh, reduce carbon. So what, what we've seen historically in the cement industry, as you well know, is that energy efficiency and the use of alternative fuels and the use of cementitious products have been pursued very, uh, uh, you know, very enthusiastically because they reduce costs as well as reducing the carbon footprint. And I think, uh, you know, the, the history to date shows that that has been the, the, the winning formula so far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if we can then go further by taking the CapEx away from it all, then I think that we can have something that can, you know, really move like wildfire. Um, and and we, can, we can affect change at a much faster scale than we're used to. Great. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.